You can listen to all episodes of Leonard ad-free on Wondry Plus. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts. The moment of the verdict is one of those emotional divides in my own life where I saw the world one way and in an instant I saw the world in a very different way. That's Pulitzer Prize-winning author Louise Erdrich. In the summer of 1977, Louise was a fresh-faced Dartmouth grad working her first job out of college in Fargo, North Dakota, when a moment of serendipity led her to attend the murder trial of Leonard Peltier. It was a profound experience that shaped her journey as an artist. I would listened to the evidence. I had tried to piece it together, and I couldn't connect it. There was no specific evidence there that said, all right, Leonard Peltier, this was his gun, this was the bullet, this is what happened, right? So this didn't fit together for me. My chain came up with missing links with nothing I could connect about that scene, specifically to Leonard, you know. It would have to be specifically to him. But the jury connected those links. They made those leaps of faith in the broken chain, those leaps of faith representing fear, resentment, and a sense of threat, you know, all of these things. But I didn't think that would be possible. And when we found out the verdict, there was a sense of, i say that it was this crushing sense of disbelief. There was just this, this sort of eruption, a shout that was just like, no, no. And um, it took a long time for that that revision of outlook to become, in a sense, who I was and who I tried to be for years after that. Um, it certainly turned up. That's where I started writing Love Medicine. In that book, I think I referred to this idea that everyone that I grew up with has about justice, that it is justice, but that if you're on the other side of a wall, if you're not white and you're not in the good people category, anything can be done to you. Anything. You're listening to Leonard, a podcast series about Leonard Peltier, one of the longest serving political prisoners in American history. I'm Andrew Fuller. And I'm Rory Owen Delaney. We've spent the last four years working to share Leonard's story with a new generation of people, who he is, how he ended up behind bars, and why we believe he deserves to go free. This is Season 2, Episode 14, Louise. In this chapter, we explore the Fargo trial from the perspective of one of today's greatest living writers, Louise Erdrich. But don't take our word for it. Erdrich has a long list of accolades, including one National Book Award and two National Book Critics Circle Awards. She's also received the Library of Congress Prize in American Fiction, the prestigious Penn Saul Bellow Award for Achievement in American Fiction, and the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. As we were pursuing this interview, Louise added another trophy to the cabinet when her novel The Night Watchman claimed the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 2021. Which made it more difficult than usual to book the Native American author and poet for our humble indie podcast, because Louise doesn't often grant media requests. At least that was per her literary management team, who responded to our initial email inquiry by asking how much money we'd be willing to pay. 
We answered that we couldn't afford to make a cash offer, but asked them to please deliver our heartfelt plea to Miss Erdrich anyway. And it worked. As soon as Louise found out what we were up to, she was in. Which means a lot. Louise was already busy doing press for her Pulitzer and finishing her next book, The Sentence, so she had every right to say thanks but no thanks. But she didn't pass. She made it happen and cleared time in her hectic schedule to speak to us about Leonard in November 2021. This was big. I mean, it was basically the literary equivalent of snagging Michael Apted. It was an interview that we'd never dreamed we'd get. And when it finally took place, Louise did not disappoint. In our last episode, we analyzed Leonard's trial from a largely legal perspective, detailing how the facts of the case were orchestrated to ensure that the jury in Fargo, North Dakota, reached a different conclusion than the one in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. In this installment, a Pulitzer Prize winner paints a psychological portrait of what happened and why to try to help us make sense of this madness. Because justice isn't uniform. It's not some commodity that's the same on store shelves across the country. It's the product of specific people within a specific environment. It's a job that Louise Erdrich is uniquely qualified for for a couple reasons. First, because of her background. And second, because of her unique understanding of human behavior as one of the foremost writers alive today. We also wanted the interview because while researching season two of this podcast, we discovered an old excerpt from PBS's Democracy Now!, where Miss Erdrich talked about attending Peltier's trial. I sat through that trial as a young person, and I listened to all the evidence, and I heard it all, and there was no way I could see that this person would be convicted. There simply wasn't evidence. And he was convicted. He received two life sentences. That clip set this whole process in motion, but it's short, and we wanted to hear more from Louise on the subject. Because we knew she would spit fire, and we had a lot of questions. Like why she was in Fargo, North Dakota in the summer of 1977, and how she had come to attend the Leonard Peltier murder trial in the first place. Without further ado, here's Louise, in her own words. All right, so I'm Louise Erdrich, and I grew up in Wahpeton, North Dakota, which is a town about 45 minutes south of Fargo. Wahpeton has always been a small sort of insular town, and Fargo was the big city. My mother found out that Dartmouth was admitting women and had a Native American program. Nobody believed it, but she found it in the National Geographic, and she was convinced I should go there, and I did go there. I'd never been on a plane. I'd lived my whole life only in Wahpeton, except for visits to Fargo or Winnipeg. People love to go up to Winnipeg from North Dakota. It's so much culture, you know. And uh, I came back after, after college with a Bachelor of Arts and no job. I, had, I, I forgot to prepare for a job. They don't prepare you for a job. You know, I, I hadn't thought about it. So I ended up going to the big city, which is Fargo, deciding that I would become a professional poet. And um, I worked for a small press distribution service And I lived in a small apartment over a place called Frederick's Flowers, which is still a flower shop. And uh, that's about two blocks from the federal building in Fargo. So I'm, I'm working for my friend Joe Richardson, who has this small press distribution service and we publish poets. And my, my greatest um, aspiration is to have a chapbook, 
I'm, I'm in no way an activist at this point. You know, I'm just, um, I just want a chapbook. I want to be, I'm a poet and my, my poem, my poems are sort of set in the breakdown lane because I was always in the breakdown lane. I had these unreliable cars and, uh, silent fields. And I guess I featured the violence of suppressed emotion in young women, let's say. <laughs> so there I am in one day in the spring of 1977, I hear, uh, what I'm thinking then are powwow drums, but they're not. They're different. In the mid-70s, Fargo was a relatively small town with a population of roughly 50,000. So when Louise heard the thumping of what sounded like powwow drums coming from the street outside her office, she went to investigate. You know, I world, my world then is downtown Fargo. And that world we can go into later because uh, it features lots of bars, let's say. Bars and poets. Anyway, I go to see what's happening, and I see some people that I grew up with in Wapaton. One person is known as a runner. He, he ran with my dad. He played basketball my, with my father, Ralph. He, I mean, he was just known as an all-around athlete. Well, I'd never seen him as... Um, we, we didn't really, I didn't really see people as Indian, not Indian, Native, not Native, because I grew up in a place where people were kind of stirred, stirred up together. And all of a sudden, I saw him dressed slightly differently. And I saw some women I knew, a lot of women I, I had known or grown up with. I don't remember everybody, but I remember shaking hands with people and kind of joining into this group. We promise not to cut in too much here, but we just want to stress that when Louise sat in and observed Leonard's trial, she didn't have any prior allegiances. She was just an impartial observer. That's what makes her conclusions all the more poignant. We were gathered at that point in front of a building with tall ionic columns, beautiful columns, beautiful limestone, majestic building. There are not that many majestic buildings in Fargo, but that was it. That was one. So I heard what was happening on some level, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. People were also dressed very, I would say, humbly, you know, in windbreakers and jeans and old tennies, kind of like me at first. You know, I, I wasn't part of this. There was a few people dressed in more traditional clothing, but mostly it was people who started telling me a little bit about what was happening. And so I went in and I think we went through maybe metal detectors or some, some sort of um, security line. I'd never been through anything like that before. You know, there was, there was nothing like that in my life. And I went in to sit down and went into um, so some kind of long, imposing atrium entryway and then into a smaller, a smaller, hallway, large wide hallway, and then into the courtroom, filed into the courtroom and sat in the back and sat with these people. And so that's how it started. I started going to the trial. And I don't remember at what point I had entered into the process of seeing this trial. From what I read, it seemed like there was just marshals everywhere and just sort of very intimidating. Was it intimidating to enter the courtroom every day? Yes, it was. 
as I said, I'd, I'd never been through a security checkpoint before. I'd never been in the presence of uh, this sense that we had to corral these people together because they might suddenly burst out in violence. You know, in violence. I, I think that was the. Um, I think that was the sense in the courtroom that the Indian people, and I, I keep saying Indian because that's what it, that's what everybody was at the time. You know, now it would be I would say indigenous people, right? But at the time, it was Indians. The Indians had to be kept under control. And the implication of that is they're dangerous. You could look at everybody who was in that, who was in that group and say, well, who's dangerous? There's a couple of people who have long hair and braids, maybe, and a few men in the calico, the bone choker, the, you know, there was one person who had a jean jacket and was carrying a pipe bag. That's it. But they're mostly women in windbreakers and sneakers. That sounds terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it was really scary. <laughs> but no, um, I, st- I, I actually have, I, I saved the uh, cargo forum. I, I found it in this... <laughs> The guilty the day after the guilty verdict, and sure enough, there's uh, a few men in um, you know, and I I love this look, you know, the the calico, the bone choker, the hat. I loved the hat look, but nobody had a hat on in this picture. But I'd never been to anything of this nature where people were assembled to be part of a cause that was very emotional. I mean, there were people in tears and there was people, there were people who, um, who had a very deep commitment to spiritual life. I'd been raised a Catholic. I didn't know about other people my age who were involved in native spiritual life. My grandfather was, he was part of the Midday but he was one of the very few people on the Turtle Mountain Reservation who had that belief. He was an he was an Ojibwe speaker. He prayed for me. He named me. But I didn't know there were there were other people. I mean, this sounds crazy now because well, everybody knows, but I didn't know. I felt um, I felt that I belonged with the other people, and there were some people I knew. So I didn't. I had a different connection. Like Leonard, Louise is Ojibwe and an enrolled member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa, a connection that we'll explore in more detail later in this episode. So um, I began going to the trial and listening, and I guess I tried to form for myself without knowing anything about what happened in Pine Ridge. I had a very minimal you know, knowledge of what had happened. So I was purely trying to figure out whether Leonard Peltier was guilty or not guilty. You know, this is what I was, of course, because this was the trial. This was part of what I was listening for. But also I was I was surprised when um I think I saw the the bus with the jurors, the jurors getting onto a bus. And it seemed to me that the windows they couldn't see anyone, that they got in to the bus, and I, I guess they were going off somewhere to be sequestered, whatever. 
The jurors couldn't see out of the windows of the bus because they'd been papered over as part of the sequestration process. They were told it was for their safety, but really it was a ploy by prosecutors to keep the jurors from seeing that Leonard supporters were just as human as they were. Anyway, it surprised me that the jurors couldn't see the people. Um, they could probably, you know, they could see them, of course, in the courtroom. But I thought, oh, so they must feel a little like me, like the singing is drumming. What does that mean? To me, it meant, of course, oh, this is something I, it's resonating for me. It's something I may have always needed or wanted. You know, and because I should say, you can't see me now, but you'd never think I'm an, uh, a, an American Indian, a Native person. You know, I'm, I, I'm like a white, a white person, a white-looking person. I have dark hair, brown eyes. But, you know, so I knew what they must be feeling because I've been around, I've been raised with people in North Dakota who um, had this certain feeling about Indians. And that must have been really scary to them, you know? Suddenly hearing, they're drumming. What? They're drumming? It must be like war drums or whatever. You know, these were songs, these were spiritual songs, songs of healing, songs of peace, songs of appeal to the greatness of spirit. You know, these were what the songs were, and I knew knew that. But what they were hearing was something very different. And so... You know, to set the scene of what it was like for people at that, for, for, for white people at that time, in that place, okay? What I would always hear was, oh, she's a good Indian. He's a good Indian or not a good, you know, bad Indian. Good or bad, good Indian or bad Indian. Bad Indians made trouble. And a good Indian was someone, oh, who was working as a janitor. They would, people would have, white people had some, um, contact with good Indians who worked in very low-level jobs, you know, something that was non-threatening. Native American people lived largely hidden lives. You know, Native American people had always been quiet. My grandfather, he was an incredible power force, an activist who saved his people from the policy known as termination, but he was quiet, he was friendly, he was funny. You know, part of his power came from being two things at once. Louise's grandpa, Patrick Gourneau, worked as a night watchman at a local factory so that he could spend his days fighting the proposed termination of the Turtle Mountain Reservation in his capacity as tribal chairman. Gourneau is the inspiration for the protagonist of her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, the Night Watchman. So at the time, the other bad Indian was the drunk Indian, right? So yeah, I was at a lot of bars. The Pink Pussycat, uh, which is featured a giant winking sign of a pink pussycat. The Roundup, a cowgirl swinging a lighted lariat. I mean, I, I miss these bars. They were torn down. It's now a parking lot where they were. Um, So these bars and taverns were about three or four blocks, I think, from the federal building, maybe five. They they were in a a world that, you know, white people would drive through it if they, unless they were part of the world that wanted to drink, you know. So there are a lot of white people stumbling around and there are 
Indians stumbling around on the streets. This Fargo is a very small downtown, and all these places are um, within uh, maybe six blocks of the, the railroad station. And Fargo looks a lot like it did in 1977. I think at the time when urban development happened, for whatever reason, they only uh, got rid of the place where <laughs> where um, people drank. You know, that was the that was the awful spot. So they got rid of it, but they kept the rest of the downtown. Whether it was lack of money or a wish to keep it the way it was, I don't really know. But Fargo looks a lot the same. Um, but that's how people, how white people would have seen Indians as people who were stumbling around um, or now this new category, which was angry Indians or bad people who were causing trouble, who were stirring things up, being an aim, you know, that was scary. That meant you were a bad Indian. And white people are only um, a couple of generations at that time away from the Indian Wars. They're still scared. You know, they have this conception that Indians could rise up somehow, you know, <laughs> and the, the the fear is in this jury. And it's, it's being um, fanned by this idea that you shouldn't look at anyone. Because if people had looked out, they would have seen, as I was describing, some very humble people who wanted justice. They, you know, they, they were singing, so I guess that was, and, and the drum, was, all they heard was, was that part of it, you know. It was the fear of the other, kind of. A specific other. It was a specific, you know, every, it, it's hard for people outside of the West or Midwest to understand that that fear also um, has a flip side of hatred. Because uh, on the coasts, Native Indian people are more um, romanticized because the coasts succeeded in the project, which has always been a project of the United States government of total of all, almost total eradication and dispossession. So people there don't understand often don't understand the hatreds in northern Minnesota in many parts of North Dakota, throughout the West, Midwest, the hatred and the resentment. I think that's a big part of it too. The attitude isn't like, oh, look, what I'm standing on really belongs to Indian people, to Native people. Um, I think when AIM started, or I don't know who in the American Indian movement um, made the first speech, we are your landlords, right? And the treaties are basically rent. Well, that started, started in my mind, at least with the American Indian movement. And um, I believe it began to trickle throughout people's attitudes, maybe in a very limited way in places that are close to reservations and people feel very threatened. This idea that somehow Indians are getting something for nothing, that's very deep. Like, how can they complain? No, this is this is the attitude. How can they complain? Look what they're getting. They're getting a free ride. And, and look at the government gave them this land. That's the attitude. That was the attitude expressed by Shirley Clock, who was allowed to remain on the jury in Fargo despite admitting to prejudice against Native Americans during voir dire. 
We asked Louise for her general impressions of the jurors. They were all white people, and they were the sort of people I would have gone to church with. Um, they're people I grew up with. They would have been neighbors, people in town, you know. And um, it didn't surprise me that everyone was white, because I guess because white people were always in charge or always in official positions in North Dakota. So I was not surprised. In a very few places, Native people would be in charge, but not in something like this courtroom, which was imposing and a lot of dark wood. And um, it was a place where, like all the priests, all the nuns, all the Kiwanis Club, <laughs> the um, Elks Club, all the people in, who were in charge of Wahpeton, they were all white. So I was not surprised. What was your impression of the judge, of Judge Benson? Well, he would have been the head of the Elks, you know, or the <laughs> the Elks Club or whatever. You know, there's a clear hierarchy in my town, and he would have been the police chief, the person, the judge, the person who everyone looked up to and who everybody believed and depended upon and who ran things. So that's who he was. You know, I didn't know what was really going on at the time. But I accepted all that, that the jury was white because this was North Dakota and that the judge was in charge. I just accepted it. So what were your impressions of the trial? You, you were just going in there to kind of hear both sides. And, and so what did you make of the both sides? Well, I didn't really, I don't think I heard both sides. The defense is very foggy to me. I, I didn't think that the defense was... I didn't hear a lot of the defense. I um, I tried to piece together what the prosecution was telling the jury and the judge. And, you know, I haven't really gone back and looked through the transcript of the trial or anything like this. So I'm just giving you what, at the time, were my, my thoughts as I was hearing this. Um, I know there was, there was ballistic evidence. and. This seemed to me something that was, uh, it was a, it, it rattled like some kind of unlinked chain in my mind. I couldn't make a connection. There was no specific evidence there that said, all right, Leonard Peltier, this was his gun, this was the bullet, this is what happened, right? So this didn't fit together for me. And I go in there naively now that I look back, of course, but at the time, what I was looking for was some piece of evidence. Something had to connect this person, Leonard Peltier, beyond a reasonable doubt, to the killings. And these were brutal killings. All the killings down there at that time were brutal. And as I, I heard about them more and more by being around people, and I hadn't known what it was like down there. I began to understand it. And of course, I connected it with what it would have been like on the place I went to stay with my grandparents on in the Turtle Mountains and what that would have been like to live basically in a war zone where some people were getting killed around you, people you loved, what that would be like to be in that, that world. 
where you were being targeted for murder and there were guns. And I, 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 I hadn't, I hadn't put that together, but that was nowhere in the trial. I mean, there was no mention of what it was like down there. This is something I heard from people I knew what it was like, you know? So, um, that was another thing. I knew the outcome of the other trial. So I, I knew this, the stakes were pretty high for the FBI to convict someone because if they didn't, what would that mean? It would mean that somebody got away with murder. That's the thing. I mean, somebody had to take this fall and people had to have some satisfaction because all those terrifying things that happened on Pine Ridge, people didn't see that from the Indian point of view, that it was a war zone where Indian people had no way of defending themselves. And so this, 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 you know, this, this, this was never, never part of the, the scene wasn't set. All right. It was not set at all that this was a, a war zone and that people had finally tried on some level to defend themselves. This was not it. This was not the, the scene. Here, Louise echoes the criticisms of Leonard's attorney, Elliot Tykeff, while also underscoring how Judge Benson's decision to exclude evidence about the violence on Pine Ridge ultimately affected the verdict. The latter being, of course, one of the recommendations put forward by the Bureau based on their analysis of the Cedar Rapids acquittal. So I was just trying to follow the facts, which you'd think that a poet wouldn't do, <laughs> because, but this was a trial, so... And I did. I had a I had a very fancy education, so I thought I, you know, this is this is going to be where we see the facts will should come out. There should be something that connects this tremendously serious crime with Leonard Peltier. So I listened to. There was a lot about a car, you know, um, a truck. Uh, van, you know these these things all came in and out of the prosecution. So for every single one of these things, you would have to make a leap of faith. You know that belongs in church. That does not belong in a courtroom. But if people are in a mindset where there's a bad Indian and they're afraid, and they hear drums and they're, you know, they have that grounding in. Um, a prejudicial upbringing, which most people, most white people at that time and a lot of people now still have the tendency to look at an Indian person and believe the worst. Of course, you know, they're an Indian. That's how it would have been then. And it still is now. I mean, it, you know, you look up at what's happening in northern Minnesota and it's still the same in many ways. But then, um, what I was piecing together and saying, there's no connection. I mean, this can't happen. There's just, just no connection. You have to have something that connects. Um, I was seeing the broken links, and they were, they were closing the links with that grounding in fear and resentment. The moment of the verdict is one of those emotional divides in my own life where I saw the world one way and an 
an instant, I saw the world in a very different way. And I don't think we were in the courtroom. I think we were in that large anteroom before the courtroom. When we found out the verdict, there was a sense of, I'd say that it was this crushing sense of disbelief. And, you know, and there was this a shout that every, there was just this, this sort of eruption, a shout that was just like, no, no. And then I left. I probably for once didn't go out and have a drink. <laughs> you know, that would have been my normal response at that, at that age. But I, I think we went to a sweat somewhere in wider at Whiter's. And, um, it took a long time for that revision of world, that revision of outlook to become, in a sense, who I was and who I tried to be for years after that. Um, it certainly turned up. That's where I started writing Love Medicine. In that book, I think I referred to this idea that everyone that I grew up with has about justice, that it is justice, but that if you're on the other side of a wall, if you're not white and you're not in the good people category, anything can be done to you, anything. And you can't depend on justice. So that became my outlook. Justice became the focus of a great deal of my work, my first book, and then a trio of books that dealt with issues of justice. So we come to the present day and um, we see a justice system that has resulted in the mass incarceration. What is it, 3.5 million people now? And Minnesota itself imprisoning more women than all of Canada imprisoned and all of Europe. We come to a world within a world of pain within plenty, of sorrow and misery within a world of ads that show joyful people, joyful Americans eating and loving and drinking and cleaning their carpets. This is the world we see and that is the world we have. That world where people are forced into a world of shuffling pain, of of misery and neglect, a narrow world. But I have to say, Um, corresponding with Leonard that I see someone who has made a life out of that world. After the break, Louise opens up about her friendship with Leonard and the special connection she discovered years after the Fargo trial. This is Chase Iron Eyes and you're listening to Leonard, a podcast about one of America's longest serving political prisoners, Leonard Peltier. In the 70s, my father, Wallace June Little Jr., was close with Leonard. It was a friendship that was made even closer by the tragic events of June 26, 1975. 
which both were fortunate enough to survive. Unlike their AIM brother, Joseph Killswright stunts. Today, I'm excited to announce that I will be officially joining the Leonard Podcast as an executive producer in season three, which will guide listeners through Peltier's prison escape and unsuccessful legal appeals up until the present day. Every June 26th, we remember Leonard. We remember him in our run for freedom here in the Oglala homeland, the Pine Ridge Reservation. We also remember Joel Kilsright stunts. And I personally even remember Ron Williams and Jack Kohler. I don't think they intended to do what they were partaking in that day. This is a long war. And Leonard Peltier is just one battle in that long war. Just like Little Bighorn. Just like Wounded Knee. The first Wounded Knee in 1890. Just like Wounded Knee 2 in 1973. Just like Standing Rock in 2016-2017. We have to keep up the fight. And it's difficult. It's a hard road. But just think of how hard it is for Leonard. Leonard cannot die in prison. He wants to make his journey in his homeland. He wants to come home so he can partake of that ceremony according to his intentions. And I don't know what else to say about Leonard. I don't know how he keeps it together in there. But he's strong. And we all benefit from that kind of unconquerable dignity we can never lose faith we can never give up or get weary because leonard peltier deserves to be free free leonard we come again to the question of justice and what kind of justice we have in our country everyone in the world of course does not have our system of justice which is not a system of justice. It's really a system of punishment. Uh, at this point, in fact, long ago, one would say Leonard Peltier has been rehabilitated. Leonard Peltier has become an advocate for his people. He is distinguished by kindness, by his devotion to art, by his devotion to his family. And you know, he is a strong, good soul. At this point, he's an asset to the world. So why is he living in a cell? Why isn't he out here contributing the wisdom he's earned? Why isn't he with us? There's, there's no, it, it, it's senseless. A lot of people died in the mid-1970s. And I know that when people pray in Sundance's they pray for everyone. They pray for those agents, too, and for their families, right? And that's spirituality. I hear that every time I'm in a sweater and with people. People are praying for the people who have victimized them as well as their families. I pray for everybody. You know, I remember being at ceremonies with some of the young men who... You know, here, this is my dog growling. I'm going to put him in. <laughs> he's famous now. Be right back. Hey, buddy. What's his name? <laughs> oh, he's he's named for the little black pig Ryoga, which is in a, an old anime. It's my daughter named him. I like it. So, Wabaton, North Dakota, um, is an agricultural town, but it also was originally. It, it it really is still on Sisseton Wabaton. Dakota, Lakota, you know, it's it's on 
the original reservation. It's within the boundaries. And that's what it really should be, uh, reservation land. That's why a federal boarding school was established there. And my grandfather went to this school. In fact, um, I went to the National Archives and found letters where he petitioned the superintendent to let him in. So you hear a lot about boarding schools. Um, it's, It's really complicated. There are a lot of painful, abusive things that happen. But I'm just going to say my my letter from my grandfather said, please let me in. And the superintendent's going, I don't know, Mr. Gorno. <laughs> yes, let me in. So he he um, went to, graduated from Wapaton Indian Boarding School. My mother and my father both taught there. It ended up that it's been, re- it's, it was returned to tribal control. Anyway, my dad loved being a teacher. That's what he loved. He loved teaching his students and he taught mostly sixth grade, but at some point he taught third grade. And I can't remember if this was sixth or third grade, but it probably actually was sixth because my father had a long scroll and he had every student who ever was in his class sign this really long paper scroll of paper. He used to get cuttings from the, there was a printing company in the town and he would take home all the cuttings from the big rolls of paper. So you get these scrolls. He had a timeline that went all around the, the room and he had this scroll. So we were looking at out down the scroll one time and at every single student he'd ever had. And the scroll is like way, it's so long, it stretches for, for a very long time. And we came across Leonard Pelcher as a student. I asked my dad what he remembered, and he said, you know, I think he was a smart kid with a lot of energy, a lot of energy. (laughs) It wasn't like he could remember everybody. I don't know what else he might have remembered it or not. I don't know if Leonard remembers him, but he was a student. There's not much to that story, except that there's this endless scroll with Leonard on it. And Leonard's, I do remember that Leonard's signature, uh, you know, kids were just writing their names up, but Leonard's was emphatic, you know, like really, really, it was like he'd written with um, a heavier, thicker kind of signature. So you could tell right even then he was really somebody. Louise discovered her father's relationship to Leonard when she started writing to him in the late 90s after the publication of his book, Prison Writings. Okay, let's see. I'm going to read to you a few pieces of correspondence, just a few bits of this. So um, I wrote to Leonard on and off once I just realized that I could write to him because he was a writer. (laughs) So, um, yeah, he, he wrote back and said um, that he'd enjoy it. I sent him a story with some laughs in it, and he laughed. He said it was funny. Uh, and he, he said, I remember you from the trial in Fargo. I remember we shook hands one day, and your mom was with you. No, I don't remember that. And he remembered about the legal team. Um, and he said, do you realize February 6th? That's the year 2000. 
will mark my 24th year of imprisonment. And then he says, well, I thought this was remarkably graceful. This is why I think all that has happened to me was not all in vain. Sure, I lost my life slash freedom. But through it, I've been able to keep Indian issues alive and brought a lot of awareness to our people all over the world. I'm not sure how much longer I can hold on and continue this battle. My health is not the greatest these days. I have some serious problems that are not visible yet, but in time it will have taken its toll on me and begun to show. But I guess no one cannot honestly say I did not give it my all for my people, for our people. All I ever wanted was a better life for our people, my family, and now my precious grandchildren, at least so that they would not have to live the life of hardships and poverty as I had. And, you know, this, he says, I really do not want to talk. I do really do not like talking about this because I don't want to seem like I'm whining. <laughs> God, you're in prison, man. I don't want, you know, he, this is like a kind of humility. Like, I don't want to even say that I lived in poverty, but now I'm going to drop this subject. Um, yeah, I think I, so I wrote to him because I liked his book. And then um, I eventually, I ended up um, selling a lot of his books at the bookstore. I just had started it. Birch Bark Books is a small independent store in Minneapolis that Louise owns with her sister. It's also the setting for Erdrich's latest novel, The Sentence. And then um, from his legal team, I bought a painting. And then we established that that painting, a portrait of Ka Ishpa, who is a mutual relative, um, great, great grand uncle. He's well, he's in the 1892 census of the Turtle Mountains. His name is translated as Elevated One. And um, it's brilliant. It's got a brilliant background that looks like fall leaves. And this is a very, it's a very well-known portrait that was taken in Washington, D.C. And Kajpa is wearing a really styling suit coat with a kind of cravat, you know, a very flowing shirt underneath it with a tie. And he has his hands folded. He's a beautiful man. And I got to say, he kind of looks like Leonard. <laughs> but his, his suit coat is so, um, uh, it's something that you'd see on a runway. You know, it's got like a fur trim in the back. And broad lapels, a pinched in waist. And yeah, I've got post, you know, there's postcards. My mother is painted. Everybody is painted him or, you know, so it's a very beautiful portrait. Not everybody, my mother has. So everybody on the Turtle Mountains is related. So after we figured that out, um, we're cousins. And I told him, you know, I'm a Gorno. I should have established that in the beginning. My mother is a Gorno. So everybody then kind of figures out who you're related to. And I'm enrolled on the Turtle Mountains in the Turtle and the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. So anyway, I told him, yeah, my mother's a Gorno uh, and she still is the town beauty. She always was the beauty of Belcourt 
and we're all good looking. And he said, yeah, yeah, the Peltiers are not bad themselves when it comes to the looks department. I know clear across this country when it came to the Indians, ladies, I have, the Indian ladies, I have turned a few heads. I know a few who have, I know a few have gotten a severe whiplash. Um, Okay, and then we talked a lot about love because um, uh, we just talked about love and he knew someone that I had a very deep relationship with. And so he said, is it your heart's immortal thirst for his or is it spiritual or what? Just curious. Yeah, it's my heart's immortal thirst. (laughs) And then he talks a lot about his grandkids their grades, you know, things that people talk about. I feel like I've been just rattling on. You guys are really good at not interrupting people. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked to a lot of lawyers, so that helps. <laughs> oh, you have? Yeah. They can go. Right. So <clears throat> I was going to talk to you also about oh, a couple other things. Anyway, you know, I was talking about fear. So I was thinking about that. What's the basis of that fear? Sometimes I think that the idea is that capitalism keeps the world going, you know, keeps the world, the world goes round. What I think is that humble people, people who really count themselves among everything on earth, all the animals and everything on earth, people who um, just love the earth and the people on it and who are suffering together, sweating together laughing together a lot of laughing together those are the people who keep the world going and they're praying for everything and everyone and everybody on earth so i was thinking about that what's the basis of that fear because for years i've wondered this why do americans so fear indigenous people why is there a simultaneous fear of Indians and indigenous people and romanticism. And what is that? Was that guilt over what America has done, the genocide, the dispossession? But what has made the U.S. government so vicious toward indigenous people? You know, wounded knee. Look at Standing Rock. Um, look at upstate Minnesota and Line 3. And American Indians imprisoned nearly at the rate of Black Americans. And I, 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 I'm just going to throw this out there, but it seems to me that the American militarized police fear Native people in, in some way because we represent, even though we don't live in this old way, but we represent something that is absolutely unimaginable. And that is a world and a social structure that was not based on capitalism. It was a world that was congruent with the limits, the ultimate limits of land and nature. And there's examples of social structures in which wealth was not like accumulated and showed off and property defended, but the value and the honor was in sharing what you'd accumulated. And there was this idea of the dignity of the common good among people. And that's what really mystified Europeans when they first encountered Native Americans. When they encountered Indians, they couldn't understand. It's like you can't give an Indian something because that person will just share it. 
They'll just give it away. They won't keep it for themselves. So, you know, often I hear, in, especially in this political climate, there's just no alternative to capitalism. You know, it's flawed, but it's still the best that we have. And it's just not true because an alternative to capitalism, it existed right here for what we now know. I, I was just seeing the other day, what we now know was over 23,000 years. That's how far back, at least at this point, uh, scientists have traced the native presence on this continent in tribal mysticism, everyone has a place of origin, so it could have been forever, you know. I'm just saying that it existed for all that time, that these social structures and these ways of sharing wealth existed, say, for this 23,000 years. And for capitalism, once capitalism um, dominated this continent, it's taken only let's say roughly 529 years, to bring us to the brink of destruction. But we're talking about Leonard, but anyway, that's what I think the fear is somehow based on this idea that it's impossible to envision another way to live. But it's not. It's been here. So do you think that's why Leonard hasn't gotten a pardon from Clinton or Obama? Or, you know, and is there you know, a possibility that President Biden might write this wrong? I, I think it could it, it could happen. I always but I always thought it would happen. So I'm just going to say it could happen. Uh, I think that the FBI, I, I know now that they um, lobbied and put pressure on Judge Benson, and I think that they want to keep somehow for reasons that don't make sense to anyone else. They want to keep. Leonard there as an example. And I mean, I've heard people say, well, the FBI is protecting them and their families. They don't want to offend the FBI. I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. But I feel like it would, I, I feel like if it did happen, it would be a tremendous moment for Native America. It would be a watershed moment where instead of holding Leonard up as an example of this will happen to you. Don't defend your people. Don't, uh, well, instead of holding Leonard's endless imprisonment, which, you know, you, you've done this on the podcast, uh, how, how many people have lobbied worldwide for him to be released. So instead of holding him up as a symbol of military vengeance, he should be released as a symbol of what the United States also does, which is, you know, in case after case, America is also, it has also got kind people and people who care about real justice and people who understand what it means to, I should put that differently. The United States also has people who see the world as a complicated place where when someone has stood up wrongly imprisoned in the first place but has become a symbol for their people of what you could be i mean he is someone who has suffered with dignity and now he is someone who could bring enormous healing 
to Native America. So I think on that on that basis, if he was released, it would bring a sense of joy and unity. And I mean, it would make me it would it would make everybody cry. <laughs> it sort of makes me cry to think of it because I look I look back through those days since 1977 he'll be released by Jimmy Carter he'll be released by no Reagan he'll be released by George Bush he'll be released by Clinton Obama definitely Obama knows his case in fact Leonard wrote about it in his letters Obama read my case in law school you know over and over Trump should release him because Trump is really releasing all these <laughs> insanely diabolical criminals and Leonard's not a criminal I mean he's not a criminal what is he going to hurt anybody no so why is he in so he can be a symbol of military vengeance do we want that I know people in the military and I know that a lot of the reasons people go into the military is not because they want to kill people it's because they think somehow the military has many missions some of those missions are to help people and that's also why a lot of people go into law enforcement and people don't like to hear this i know there are people who are cruel in law enforcement but i also know there are really good people who want to help people let's give let's make that the face of the military and of law enforcement peacekeepers that's the face we want and Leonard's a symbol of that he's also a real person and he deserves to get out he deserves to be with his family he deserves to be hugged by his people he deserves to touch his people to hear their songs to walk this earth the most important thing for Indian people is to be with each other in a powwow in a setting out in the woods on a fire the most important thing in the world is to be embraced and to be part of a group of Indians and I felt how important that was I felt it so many times and sometimes when I felt it I've been looking around saying yeah I'm free to be among people and then to go away and to come back and he isn't but he should be free to be among people to go away to come back to make a mistake to do whatever he wants he should be free this podcast is produced written and edited on Tongva land by Rory Owen Delaney and Andrew Fuller Kevin McKiernan serves as our consulting producer thanks to Bobby Halverson for the original music we're using throughout this series and thanks to Mike Casentini at the Network Studios for their engineering assistance and to Peter Lauridsen and Sycamore Sound for their audio mixing. Thanks to Maya Minard and Emily Deutsch for helping support us while we do what we hope is important work. And thanks most of all to Leonard Peltier. To get involved and help Leonard, find us on social media at Leonard underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram or facebook.com backslash Leonard podcast. For updates and special offers, subscribe to our newsletter at mbdfilms.com. In exchange for signing up, we'll send you a free copy of our unreleased short podcast, Behind Iron Doors. 
This podcast is a production of Man Bites Dog Films, LLC. Free Leonard Peltier.